Hello, and welcome to People of the Pod, brought to you by AJC. Each week, we take you beyond the headlines and help you understand what it all means for Israel and the Jewish people. I'm Sefi Kogan. And I'm Manya Brashear-Pashman. Hi, Sefi. Welcome back from vacation. Thanks. It's good to be back in my uh, cramped Manhattan apartment from the glorious mountains of Colorado. I don't think you mean that. But perhaps your conversation uh, with a guest this week made it better. Who did you speak with? I actually followed up on your fantastic conversation last week with Haley Seufer from the National Jewish Democratic Council. And I spoke with Matt Brooks, the executive director of the Republican Jewish Coalition, about his takeaways from the RNC and what he thinks American Jews should know about the Republican platform and ticket this year. Excellent. And listeners, after that, stay tuned for our Shabbat Table Talk segment. This week, we have at our table Saba Sumech, the Associate Director of AJC Los Angeles, talking about some troubling developments in their ethnic studies curriculum. And now, let's hit the show. As the Republican National Convention dominated the news this week, I sat down with Matt Brooks, the executive director of the Republican Jewish Coalition, to hear him make the Jewish case for the Republican Party. Just a reminder, AJC is a 501c3 not-for-profit organization that neither endorses nor opposes candidates for elective office. Matt, thank you so much for joining us. Sefi, it's great to be with you. Thanks for having me. AJC held a series of virtual programs last week at the Democratic National Convention, and we're doing the same this week alongside the RNC. You spoke at an AJC RNC program yesterday, and you guaranteed that Donald Trump will win a larger percentage of the Jewish vote in 2020 than he did in 2016. What makes you so confident of that? First of all, my understanding of the politics of the Jewish community. I've been doing this job for 30 years, so I think I have a very good feel for the Jewish community. But the, the most important reason is to look at the record of this president. Uh, there is no question that he has been, uh, without a doubt, the most pro-Israel president ever in history. Uh, that's not coming just from Matt Brooks, but it's coming from people like the prime minister of Israel has said as much in the Oval Office uh, in meeting with him. So there's a reason why 56 percent of the Israelis who were polled in a recent poll uh, would like to see President Trump reelected and only 16 percent want to see Joe Biden reelected because they understand that this president has absolutely transformed the U.S.'s relationship. But beyond that, Sefi, it touches on domestic issues. I think people in the Jewish community are deeply concerned about what's happening in our big cities, whether it's Portland, Seattle, New York, the lawlessness, the rioting, the efforts by the left-wing progressives in the Democratic Party who want to defund the police. I think people in the Jewish community understand that President Trump, given his incredible track record pre-COVID, is the best person to revitalize our economy post-COVID and also uh, recreate and bring back all the jobs that were lost as a result of this pandemic. So I think there's a wide range of issues that uh, both foreign and domestic that, to me, give me great confidence to have my Babe Ruth moment point into the stands and guarantee that this president will do better among Jewish voters in 2020 than he did in 2016. Well, as a Yankee fan, I appreciate any reference to Babe Ruth. So let me just follow up on that, though. You pivoted and spoke about domestic issues at the end, which obviously are, are very important. You started out with Israel, though. And I'm, I'm curious, does the RJC have any kind of uh, polling or anything like that that indicates that a large percentage of American Jews do vote based on Israel? My sense is it's generally not a top issue for American Jews. So we do have extensive polling and we're very data driven in our messaging and how we look at the races. 
you know, I think your point is well taken, but, you know, elections and, and campaigns are about mosaics. It's about putting pieces of the puzzle together. It's not just one issue. There is definitely a segment of the Jewish community that does care about Israel. We're going to appeal to them. There's definitely a segment of the Jewish community that appeal to issues like school choice. We're going to appeal to them. There's definitely segments of the Jewish community uh, that care about, you know, the issue of defunding the police and having law and order in our streets and protecting us against anti-Semitism. So, you know, we're going to have various messages targeted to various constituencies within the Jewish community. Our community, as you well know, is not monolithic. So to say that there is one issue that's going to drive the Jewish vote would be a mistake. But I think we have enough experience and expertise in this arena to make sure that we're serving up the right messages Mm-hmm. One issue that you just mentioned, Matt, is uh, is anti-Semitism. Joe Biden actually laid the cornerstone of his campaign on President Trump's comments after the Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville. In his video announcing his candidacy and then again last week when he accepted the nomination, Vice President Biden cited the president's very fine people on both sides comment, uh, which he saw as excusing anti-Semitism. He cited those comments as motivating him to get into the race to beat the president. Um, How would you want Jewish voters to think about those comments? Well, I mean, that's going to be part of our task. And we've had several events, uh, both with Nikki Haley, Mark Levin, with Senator Ted Cruz just this last Sunday night, you know, in which we've talked about that. There is a mythology that has taken hold by the Democrats to try and create a false narrative that the president uh, excused or, or somehow tried to give support to white nationalists. If anybody takes a step back and reads the entire transcript, and admittedly, I wish he had been clearer and less awkward in his original remarks, and we put out a statement to that effect. But if you read a few sentences before and a few sentences after, very fine people on both sides, it's very clear that the president strongly condemns white nationalists, neo-Nazis, and, you know, it is absolutely unambiguous. Also look to some of his other speeches and actions. You go back and look right after the Tree of Life synagogue tragedy. Uh, He gave a speech that day to the uh, future farmers of America. No president, no president. Go back and take a look at the record, and you'll agree, if you read the opening of that speech, no president has ever condemned anti-Semitism and planted a flag about U.S. and and our strong commitment to fight anti-Semitism wherever it raises its ugly head. And then, obviously, you look at what the president did on his executive order uh, to help protect students on college campuses who have been the victims of anti-Semitism. And I will tell you, time and time again, this president has, by action, demonstrated his commitment not only to condemn white nationalist neo-Nazis, but also to stand up and take strong stands against the rising anti-Semitism in this country. Do you agree that Joe Biden shares that same commitment to fighting anti-Semitism? I agree that Joe Biden does, absolutely. But I wish that others in the Democratic Party took a stronger point. I think it is absolutely unconscionable that Democrats gave a platform to uh, Linda Sarsour to speak as as part of an event associated with the Democratic Convention. And I think she was trafe enough to be kicked out of the Women's March, but she was kosher enough for the Democrats to have her featured at their convention. I think that is I think that is repugnant. I think the way they've handled it is repugnant. I think the fact that Joe Biden strongly condemned her and then they had to walk that back and apologize to her for condemning her is absolutely absurd. And it should send chills down everybody's spine in the Jewish community. But beyond that, the institutionalization of anti-Semitism within the Democratic Party, I, for one, don't understand how we can have a Speaker of the House, Nancy Pelosi, 
who not only endorses Elon Omar in her primary that just happened a few weeks ago, not only endorsed her, given her, her record of making anti-Semitic comments, but also, in addition, gave her $14,000 in campaign contributions personally from her. So while I think Joe Biden has spoken out against anti-Semitism, and I believe he cares deeply about anti-Semitism, unfortunately, there's a festering malignancy within the Democratic Party that folks aren't prepared to, to step up to and deal with. Both parties kind of have their festering malignancies, right? I'm sure, Matt, that you're maybe even sick of answering questions like this because the RJC has really done the right thing on people like Steve King from Iowa, the neo-Confederate who doesn't seem to know that Iowa is part of the union, or Marjorie Taylor Greene, this conspiracy theorist from Georgia um, who the president called, quote, a real winner. The RJC has done the right thing here and has spoken out on, on both of those people. But doesn't it say something about the Republican Party that these people, someone like Steve King, stuck around for so long, someone like... Marjorie Taylor Greene is being welcomed by the president? No, that's a great question, Stephanie. And thank you for, for asking, because it gives me an opportunity to again point out how different our two parties are. Take, for example, the point you made about Steve King, who you're correct. Since about 2010, we made a decision that we were not going to support Steve King. This is not a, you know, sort of Johnny come lately thing for us. We have felt that he has not represented who we are as, as Republicans for quite some time. We've not had him speak at any events. But look what happened after his most recent set of controversial and repulsive comments. The Republican leader of the House, Kevin McCarthy, literally on the first day that he took over as Republican leader, stripped Stephen King of all of his committee assignments. Compare and contrast that to how the Democrats are handling people like Elon Omar. Nancy Pelosi endorses Elon Omar. Nancy Pelosi contributes money to Elon Omar. And Nancy Pelosi doesn't strip Elon Omar of her committee assignments. Rather, she gives her a coveted slot on the House Foreign Affairs Committee. So I think there is clearly a difference how our parties deal with bad apples. And I think, you know, it's easy to point out Steve King or, or Marjorie Taylor Greene, who we also opposed, by the way, and supported her opponent in the primary. But take a look at what's happening broadly in the Democratic Party. We had a resolution recently in the House trying to get folks on record in opposition to BDS, which I think is absolutely anti-Semitic. Sixteen Democrats 16 Democrats voted no on this resolution to condemn uh, the anti-Semitic BDS movement. And so I think that, you know, our Republicans, we certainly have uh, the occasional bad apples, and I think we deal with them strongly and effectively. I think if I were in the, you know, as a member of the Jewish community, I'm much more troubled by how the Democrats are, are dealing with their bad apples. Um, let's uh, let's take some time to talk about the good apples. What about some of the candidates that you have endorsed this cycle? Who are some people who you are particularly excited about that you want to share with our listeners? Uh, that's a great question. Thank you for that. Well, first of all, I think we have a couple critical races in the Senate with some incredibly influential and stalwart friends who are in, in tough races. Folks like Susan Collins, Lindsey Graham, David Perdue in Georgia, Cory Gardner in Colorado, and Martha McSally in Arizona are all terrific friends. Uh, Tom Tillis, also in North Carolina, is in a very tough race. These are senators who, you know, not only talk the talk about standing with the Jewish community, but have a strong track record. I am particularly excited about two races in the House because, as you know, we have two Jewish Republicans in the House caucus right now. We have David Kostoff from Tennessee uh, and Lee Zeldin, who joined us on the AJC call yesterday. But I think we're going to add two new members of the Jewish Republican caucus in this election. Lisa Scheller in Pennsylvania 7, right outside of Philadelphia, 
has uh, got an incredible story. She is passionate about her pro-Israel activism. Uh, she has a home in Israel. She speaks fluent Hebrew. She's a successful businesswoman, but she also has a compelling story in that, you know, in her youth, she was a heroin addict, overcame her addiction to heroin and to alcohol, has become an absolute force for good in her district in terms of working with uh, drug treatment programs and, and helping people who are also suffering the horrible tragedy of addiction. And she's run a successful business, uh, which has employed one of the largest manufacturing businesses in her district, which has employed thousands of people. And then we also have another terrific Jewish Republican who we're very excited about across the river in New Jersey, David Richter, who's running against Andy Kim in New Jersey 3. And we think he provides a, a terrific contrast, also a successful businessman, not a career politician. And uh, we're very excited about both of those races and look forward to welcoming uh, two new Jewish Republicans uh, to the House. Let's close uh, with one question. It's not an entirely fair question because this episode will be going up on Thursday evening and we're speaking now on Tuesday morning. So I'm kind of asking you to look into your crystal ball a little bit here. But what are some moments at the RNC that you think American Jews should be watching for? Well, I think we saw a little bit of it last night and I think we'll continue to see it again throughout the week. You know, it's very interesting how the two parties dealt with and spoke out, you know, on the issue of, of Israel, as we said before, is, is certainly an area of concern among a large segment of our community. Nikki Haley talked about it last night uh, in her speech. She also talked about the threat from Iran. I suspect the president will say some strong words about his record with regard to, uh, and I have not seen his speech, but I think that uh, he will say some strong words about the incredible record he's had in, in terms of uh, standing with Israel and the kind of things he's done whether it's moving the embassy and recognizing Jerusalem as the capital, Israel's sovereignty over the Golan Heights, ending the Iran deal, the killing of Soleimani. Those are all things that I hope he will talk about. You'll also see Secretary of State Pompeo uh, speak to the American people from the balcony of the King David Hotel. Uh, and I know that he will talk about uh, the success that we have had regionally with the brokering of the uh, historic peace agreement with uh, Israel and the UAE as well as the other things that I just mentioned about what this administration has done to transform the U.S. as a relationship. So uh, I think it's going to be very compelling and certainly stand in stark contrast to the DNC convention. Uh, we're literally the only person who mentioned Israel at any point in the convention was Linda Sarsour. So, you know, I think that's something that the community will will take note of. Matt Brooks, thank you so much for being a part of AJC's programming at the political conventions and for joining us here on People of the Pod. Great to be with you, Sefi. Thanks for having me. Now it's time for our closing segment, Shabbat Table Talk. And joining us this week is the Associate Director of AJC Los Angeles, Saba Sumech. Saba, when you gather with your friends and family for Shabbat this week, what will you be talking about? Hi, Manya. Thank you for having me. We're going to be talking about the California Ethnic Studies Model Curriculum that will be mandatory for every single high school student in California. As a longtime professor of religious studies in Middle Eastern history, and as an Iranian Jew, I was not surprised that certain Middle Eastern ethnicities are completely absent from this curriculum. The many courses I took on the Middle East and North Africa throughout my undergrad and graduate studies ignored histories, cultures, and traditions of Jews and other religious minorities in the Middle East. It was as if we plainly did not exist outside of an Islamic focus on academia. I was born in Tehran. My family fled before the 1979 Islamic Revolution, and we came to Los Angeles along with 70,000 Iranian Jews. 
And we have become major players in the economic, the social and political life of Angelenos. And we have established ourselves as one of the most well-established immigrant communities in Los Angeles. And the purpose of the California Ethnic Studies model curriculum, it says it's to empower students to learn and to combat racism and discrimination. And the revised draft curriculum directs that the Asian section of the ethnic studies curriculum includes, quote, the unique experiences of Arabs and other Middle Easterners, and which I think is wonderful. They should include this. What bothers me is that it completely ignores Iranian religious communities. Jews, Christians, Zoroastrians, and Baha'is, all of us live in Los Angeles, and all of us are integral to the Los Angeles population. It leaves out our history. It leaves out our voices. The curriculum does not talk about us. It is ahistorical in its faulty scholarship, and it projects a revisionist and an Arab Muslim-centric understanding of a diverse region. Now, my courses and others offered on religious minorities in the Middle East are highly attended and celebrated because for the first time in California, a wider range of Middle Eastern students are learning about their own history, their own culture, and their own traditions. They are seeing themselves represented in their college curriculum. The California State Board of Education must do the same thing for high school students. My community and all California students, we deserve a more nuanced, inclusive and demographically accurate portrayal of our ethnically diverse state. Saba, thank you for sharing your personal perspective on this issue. I grew up in the South where my Jewish heritage was not fully accepted, so I can kind of relate to your feeling of being overlooked growing up. Now, it's important for our listeners to understand you're speaking about the kindergarten through 12th grade draft curriculum that's still moving through the approval process there in California. I've had my eye on the new college course requirement there, which, as you know, became law last week. Four years from now, graduates of California State University, the largest four-year public university system in the nation, that's 23 schools, graduates will be required to take a three-credit traditional ethnic studies course that focuses on specific marginalized communities of color, African-American, Asian-American, Latinx, and Native American. Now, when the chancellor and trustees of the California universities heard about this bill before it became law, they developed an alternative, which would have provided students with a much broader approach to ethnic studies and social justice. Let's face it, ethnicity and race are multifaceted, and many Jews who are Mizrahi, Sephardi, and Jews of color believe it's important for the Jewish experience and anti-Semitism to be included as part of ethnic studies. Other groups have been left out, too. Hindus, Sikhs, Korean-Americans, Armenians. If the point of the graduation requirement is to help students comprehend racism and bigotry, why limit the course requirement to just four communities? And why leave out Jews who are the targets of a majority of religiously-based hate crimes? Now, we are in the middle of a long overdue reckoning right now in America. We must confront the mistreatment of blacks over the last 400 years and Native Americans going back much further. We must but we also must confront the ugly history of how other minorities have been treated and still are and learn to respect and understand other cultures. Otherwise, we're doomed to repeat that ugly history. I've talked here before about knowing only two Jews in college, one of them a cherished professor who actually inspired me to embrace my Judaism more than I ever had. But that was before the BDS movement came on campuses to discourage students from voicing support for Israel or even studying abroad there. If they do, 
Some face ostracism or even sanctions from their colleagues in student government. They encounter a lack of support from certain professors, or they find nasty flyers on their dorm room door. For Jews to be left out of a college-level ethnic studies curriculum, one that purports to guard against bigotry, all while these events are unfolding right outside the classroom, it just seems odd. So Saba, I do hope more careful thought and consideration is given to the K-12 curriculum and that the concerns and the collective experiences of AJC California are heard. After all, not all students go to college. Their careers don't require it. But life? Life requires a strong foundation in history and respecting others. The model curriculum has the potential to offer that. So hopefully, Saba, they'll listen and heed your experience. Thank you so much. Sefi, what's on your mind this Shabbat? Longtime listeners of People of the Pod have heard me talk about baseball from time to time. And while I am a lifelong, loyal, and passionate fan of the University of North Carolina's men's basketball team, I have never much cared for the NBA. But there are two pieces of NBA news this week that caught my attention. First, the news that the former Knicks star Amari Stoudemire, who has been living in Israel for years and was named the MVP of the Maccabi Tel Aviv basketball team this season, has completed his orthodox conversion to Judaism. His Hebrew name is Yehoshaphat ben Avraham. This is a beautiful story of a soul finding its home with the Jewish people, and I wish Amare and his family a very happy Jewish life. There was also news out of those currently in the NBA. The season, which was interrupted in March by the COVID-19 pandemic, has resumed in a secluded bubble in Orlando, where the teams have been playing out the postseason. That changed on Wednesday night, however, when players on the Milwaukee Bucks, the only NBA team in Wisconsin, decided to boycott their playoff game against the Orlando Magic in protest of the police shooting of Jacob Blake in Kenosha, Wisconsin. Shortly after the Bucks' decision, the league announced that all games on Wednesday would be canceled. The WNBA soon followed suit, as did several MLB teams and women's tennis star Naomi Osaka. Sports have long been appreciated for their ability to provide a distraction from sometimes grim world events. Think of the Yankees and the Mets opening New York back up after 9-11. In numerous interviews, professional athletes made clear that they wanted to play that role to help the country get through the COVID crisis too. But they refused to ignore the seemingly ceaseless shooting of unarmed black men by police. And who can blame them? The Los Angeles Lakers, led by megastar LeBron James, who has as much power in the NBA as any player or owner, and the Los Angeles Clippers, announced that they would not be completing the season. Whether they stick to that and whether the other teams complete the postseason is up in the air as we record this. But their anguished cry for justice forces all of us to sit up and take notice. I'm wishing Jacob Blake a refuash lema, a complete and speedy recovery. And I'm wishing all of you a Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. You can subscribe to People of the Pod on iTunes, Google Play, or Spotify. Or learn more at AJC.org slash People of the Pod. The views and opinions of our guests don't necessarily reflect the positions of AJC. We'd love to hear your views and opinions or your questions. You can reach us at peopleofthepod at AJC.org. If you like this podcast, be sure to rate it and write a review to help more listeners find us. Thank you for listening. This episode is brought to you by AJC. Our producer is Kukong Do. Our assistant producer is Atara Lakritz. And our sound engineer is TK Broderick. 
Tune in next week for another episode of People of the Pod.